0: Uh, this morning we start uh, what is uh, probably like my favorite story in the Bible. I think I have uh, different books of the Bible that I maybe uh, just find more uh, affinity for. But there's no story in Ruth is written and the pictures of uh, loss and crying out to God. Uh, devastation that gives way to hope and God's provision. And So this week uh, we start a, a four-week series. We'll work through uh, a chapter at a time through the book of Ruth. I mean, if this is not a story that you're familiar with or this is a story that you've heard uh, a, a bunch of times, like I'd encourage you to try and be around these next four weeks, uh, both in um, our city groups who are reading through this and studying this uh, here on Sunday morning as we uh, open up the Word together and think about the way uh, that, it, that it both shows us a, a picture of who God is um, and gives us an anchor um, for our hope and what God may do. Uh, and will do for us in the future. Um, yeah, I just love this book. Uh, uh, this morning also, uh, a small change that you may notice. Uh, this is the first morning that we um, will be uh, switching up uh, for the immediate future, uh, the the kind of normal translation of the Bible that we use on Sunday mornings. So um, up to this point, we've been using the ESV, which is a, a great translation. It's been the Bible that, um, man, for the past, I don't know, like Probably ten years, like has been uh, the primary body, Bible that I've studied out of. But um, over the past year and a half, um, I've been reading and, and kind of evaluating, uh, and so have a lot of the other leaders of our church. Uh, a new translation called the the CSB, uh, which is a, an updated uh, version of a translation that was called the HCSB um, for some time. And like we don't want to make a huge deal out of this, but we did want you to know, like, hey, the verses on the screen are out of a different translation than before. We do have a stack of these in the back. Um, if you don't have a Bible at all, uh, that's always a gift to you to take one of those with you. If you have a Bible and it's just not a CSB, don't just take one of those. If you really want a CSB, buy one. Um, look it up on your phone, um, something like that. Uh, but, yeah, I just want to say, like, I, we think this is going to be a, a helpful change for us. Uh, the CSB has um, some benefits in, in terms of the way uh, that it, it's just written in a very readable way for the way that we speak English in this day. Um, but, but honestly, like, we live in an era where it's kind of like... A uh, going to like a we're going to Vegas soon, so I've been watching lots and lots of these videos, so it's bleeding in. But it's like going to a Vegas buffet, right? It's not like going to one country buffet and you're like, uh, eh, avoid the mashed potatoes, but the this is good, you know? It's like going to a Vegas buffet. Like, we have a ton of amazing translations to choose from. That was a poor illustration, but I went for it and I leaned into it. Um, like Vegas, what kind of church is this? Like Vegas promos on Sunday. Um, but we have uh, just a variety of really good translations, and, and it's good to use uh, different translations to see different aspects of how uh, that original text was translated. But ultimately, like uh, we trust that this book, no matter which uh, translation you have in it, is the authoritative word of God, is is understandable to you, not only because you're able to uh, read it, and we praise God that we have it in our language, but also because the Holy Spirit is the one who comes alongside you to testify in your heart that this is truth, and So um, I think this is going to be a good change for us um, and hopefully uh, something that you can enjoy and maybe brings uh, just a new perspective or a new voice to the way that you read the Bible. Um, And that's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, I want to pray for us, and then we're going to jump right into the book of Ruth. God. Uh, Thanks for this book. Um, Thank you for just what a a delight it is to read and kind of the beauty uh, of the literature that we have in front of us, as well as thank you, God, that this uh, book shows us a picture of who you are in a really distinct and unique way. Uh, Thank you for the way that it speaks into uh, issues of of hardship and loss. Thank you for the way that it speaks into uh, just the way that you interact and preserve and care for your people. I've got to pray that as we read through chapter 1 today, um, probably the chapter uh, that has the most uh, just sadness in it, uh, for those of us that have experienced sadness in our lives, um, that we wouldn't shy away from that pain, um, but at the same time, that that, that as we read this book, that we wouldn't be left without hope, uh, that we would see a clear picture uh, of the kind of God that you are and the way that you work, even when it seems like you're not. Uh, God, help us to uh, read this text well. Help us to worship you well as we reflect on it. And ultimately, Lord, help us to leave here today uh, loving Jesus a little bit more and looking a little bit more like he looks. And we pray. Amen. Uh, I'm just going to read. The, the whole of chapter 1. We're not going to put any of it up on the screen yet, but I just want to take a second to, to read this chapter as a whole so you can kind of hear the arc of the narrative that we'll be in today. So this is a lot of verses, but, but hang with me here, okay? Uh, During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife, and his wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, and they were uh, Euphratites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the field of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and she was left with her two sons. Uh, her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah, and the other was named Ruth. After they had lived in Moab about ten years, both Melon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. She and her daughters-in-law set out to return from the territory of Moab because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's need by providing them food. She left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. Naomi said to you, Each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show the kindness to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. She kissed them and they wept loudly. They said to her, We insist on returning with you to your people. But Naomi replied, Return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I am too old to have another husband. And even if I thought, and even though if there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters, my life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Again, they wept loudly, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Follow your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not to follow you. For wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. The two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem. When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival, and the local women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, she answered. For the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi came back from the territory of Moab with her daughters-in-law Ruth and the Moabitess. And they arrived at Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Uh, We get the setting uh, for this story when it took place uh, right off the top. It says, this took place uh, during the time of the judges. Now, if you were to flip back just a page and read uh, the last couple lines of the book of Judges, Judges 21, uh, 25, you would read this. It says, "Um, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did whatever seemed right to him. Uh, The the context for the book of Ruth is that it exists in this period in Israel's history known as the period of the judges. And this period is known for something. It's known for a a cyclical approach to how the people of God, how the Israelites were relating to God in this period. And it went something like this, that that things were going well in the land, that the Israelites were were thriving in the land that God had promised them, the land where God had directed them to be. But then uh, in that thriving, Uh, pride would seep into who they were and they would look away from who God was and because of the uh, lack of control the lack of leadership the lack of allegiance to their God they would look away from Him and people would do what that phrase said they would do whatever was right in their own eyes and and because of their sin God being a, a good and gracious God who had promised to keep His people near to Him would bring judgment upon His people he would bring uh, sometimes famine to the land, sometimes sickness. Uh, many times they would be overthrown uh, by another uh, military force, that they would be uh, have the land that God had promised them threatened, that they would be under some sort of opposition. And then what God would do is as his people cried out to him, realizing their sin, realizing how they had looked away from their God, how they had, had violated his commands to keep their eyes on him, to worship him, to devote their lives to him, he would send a judge. And this wasn't a judge like we think of uh, necessarily that sat um, with robes, and was someone to adjudicate, this was a military leader who would come in and with an iron fist would overthrow uh, whatever nation was warring on them and peace would be restored and the people would worship God again. And that's a beautiful story if it happens maybe once, Right? But in the cycle of Judges, we see this happen over and over again. And so I'd encourage you, if you want something else to read um, during this period, and I know a lot of you are probably like, uh, you've reamped your Bible reading plan for the year, and that's awesome. If you're looking for just different things to read, you're not on a normal plan, maybe maybe read the book uh, of Judges during this period. Because what Ruth provides for us is it provides for us a little personal window into this period of time in the Bible. Now, now, the book of Judges was written uh, much later. This was likely a, a story that was told as an oral tradition passed down amongst the Israelites for years and years. Um, some people have said this was probably kind of like a, a bedtime fairy tale that was told to children um, as they laid in their beds. And some parts of this, you're like, I'm not sure if that's the fairy tale I'd choose, um, but, but it was. Um, it was something uh, that was told to them, to, to, to tell, tell them about how God had provided for his people to, to warn them of some of the things that will happen in this story um, that were not within God's will. And so this book is written um, likely around the time when David was king or maybe even a little after David's kingship as a remember of God's faithfulness and, and how this story plays out ultimately in the line of the King David who would be the king who was the forerunner in his household of Jesus himself. So that's where this book kind of sits um, in a brief format in, in kind of the spectrum of scripture and, and the time period that we're dealing with. Um, two, two other things uh, before we kind of launch into uh, line by line on this chapter. Um, one of the really unique to read this, like there, there's elements of just, just, just beauty to this story. Um, I, I, don't, I don't like speak Hebrew. I can barely even understand any of it. Um, I didn't get that far in my uh, studies. Some people in the room are smarter than me in dealing with it right now now and I'm laughing at them because it's really hard, but like I did have some time this week just to sit and and to listen to some of the portions of this um, in the original Hebrew with people reading them and just see like the poetry of it. It's just a beautiful book written with with beauty in mind and and written with uh, pleasure for the hearer. Um, Second, uh, this book is a book that was crafted to tell this story in a way that would remind you about things about God. Um, This isn't just a happenstance recording of truth, although it is recording real and true events, Uh, but this is a, a specifically crafted book to teach us about who God is and the way that he has interacted with his people so that we will be reminded of it. And so we pick it up right up the top here at verse 1. It says, During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. Uh, This man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. And the names of their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died. And she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One's name was Orpah and the other's name was Ruth. After they'd lived in Moab about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. Uh, so the setting here is that there there is famine uh, in the land that the people in, in Bethlehem, which was uh, within God's promised land for the people, um, were without food. Now, right off the top, there's some irony there to the problem that God's people are experiencing because the, the, the name Bethlehem uh, means house of bread. Okay, so there's a little bit of irony that in the house of bread there is famine, that it seems like uh, probably a cycle of drought came upon the land, and that cycle of drought then led to a lack of crops and therefore a a lack of food. And so this man, Elimelech, uh, the main character when our story begins, makes this decision that he's going to take his family and he's going to remove his family from this land that they are in, the land that God's people are residing in, the land that had been given to them, and he's going to move his people into the land of Moab. Now. Scripture doesn't speak a lot, in particular in Ruth, to exactly what's going on there or if this was out and out wrong. But what we know from the Old Testament as a whole is that it is generally discouraged for God's people to leave uh, the people of God and to leave the land that God has placed them in for another place. And the reason this is often discouraged is because to leave the land and to leave the people of God was to walk into a new land where one was a foreigner and where it was almost assumed that the worship of the gods of that culture would be a necessity to live and exist there. Um, If not that, if not only that one might be tempted to walk away from worshiping this Yahweh, their one true God, the God of Israel, the God that we worship today. If it was not just that, it was that in being in this land, they would be a foreigner. They would be exposed to hardship, perhaps in a more extreme sense, as there was no one that desired to care for them. But this is the choice that Elimelech makes to move his wife, Naomi, and his two sons to the land of Moab. Uh, It says that they lived in in Moab for about 10 years. Uh, We're not exactly sure exactly how the timeline plays out, but somewhere in the course of that first, um, Elimelech passes away. Now, Scripture's not clear on how he died. Commentators aren't sure. Um, I think that, that it's not a, a stretch to say um, if you were to look at a map, and I meant to put a map up here, and I thought this is going to be our first map, but we'll just have to wait for another day because we've never really had a Bible map, um, and I think I'm failing you as a pastor in that, but um, you can Google it because you have the internet, uh, but, but you'd see that, that Moab and Israel aren't that far apart. That Moab and the land of Bethlehem, they aren't that far separated. So it's not um, at all uh, uh, far fetched to assume that, that this famine may have extended well beyond uh, just the town of Bethlehem to where they were in Moab as well. So we don't know how Limit passes, but he passes. We read that that while in the land of Moab uh, both of Elimelech's sons uh, decide to take on uh, Moabite women as their wives. Uh, Again there is a distinct thread in the Old Testament of God's desire for his people uh, to, to marry within their own people in this period within the people of God because of the temptation that Mary would change the way that the culture was formed to worship God who was providing for, protecting and loving them. And so again, the author of this doesn't pass judgment but we're left to see this thread in the Old Testament of how these decisions don't reflect on what God has um, often promoted as ideal for his covenant people, Israel. And so they take on these Moabite women and we see that in that period in which they're married um, they're never given children. Uh, Then Disaster strikes again, and Malon and Kilion die. Now, you have to stop for a moment and just synthesize what's going on here um, for Naomi in particular. Um, This is the point in the paragraph. Um, I I thought this was neat as as you just look at the words in this paragraph, that if you you track through uh, the first portion, you'll see the word he, he, he over again, and then we transition to She. But the main character of this story at this moment shifts from being a Limelech to a story about Naomi. She is now the central character of this paragraph and her life is ruined. Um, There was no uh, social safety net for her being in a foreign land. Her two daughters-in-law had not produced any male heirs to carry on both the family name as well as to provide for her and her daughters-in-law in in this highly patriarchal uh, system in which there was really no way for a woman on her own to sustain herself in any way, shape, or form. The the place that Naomi finds herself and the place that Ruth and Orpah find themselves is just devastating. And we see these three threads spo- start to be exposed here in these chapter. Um, and the words are going to be up here. We see uh, the threads of hunger, of death, and of fruitlessness. Hunger, death, and fruitlessness. And we'll see these threads of these three things throughout the book as the way that Naomi and her family struggled and the way that they saw affliction come upon them. They were hungry. They had nothing to eat. That death riddled their family, and that there was an inability to procreate, to have kids, to receive that blessing. Now, we want to be cautious as we read this to never kind of read morality in this. But but one truth we can pull out of this is this, uh, that God had provided for his people in this time to be with each other. The, the, for his people, there was a distinct understanding uh, that this covenant knit the, God's people together. In the Old Testament, they had a really distinct understanding of the way that the covenant of God, the way that God's promises to preserve and protect them, to, to, to further their lines and provide for their needs, that there was a, a very spatial and very social way that this played out. It had physical context of this is the place in which I've chosen to bless you and this is the uh, people that I've chosen to bless with you. Now we lose sight of this a little bit because we're much more independent people, right? We think of our relationships with God as just, it's, it's me and God. And maybe if you think a little broader, you're like, well, maybe it's my, my family or my spouse and I and, and God. But, but for God's people, they saw this understanding of God's covenant faithfulness as being much more tied to the people collectively that they were and the place that God had placed them in. And so Elimelech does in this make this choice to walk outside of the people of God and to remove his family from the place that God had placed them. Now when we think about uh, the local church, when we want to reflect on this in this way. That we are uh, the covenant people of God. We are uh, those whom God has saved, who he has redeemed through Jesus. And God has not redeemed us just as individuals. He has redeemed us Collectively. And that's why each week when we share communion together, we remind ourselves of the way that the bread, in representing the body of Christ, brings unity to who we are as the people of God, united in Christ because of what he has done. And so Naomi finds herself not just separated from her people socially, but completely separated from them spatially. That she's in a foreign land. Verse 6. She and her daughters-in-law set out to return from the territory of Moab because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's need by providing them food. She left the place where she had been living accompanied by her two daughters-in-law and she traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. Naomi said to them, each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you've shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. She kissed them and they wept loudly. Now, Naomi ha- has heard of the fact that God has, in fact, been faithful to his people back in the land. Uh, again here, I think we can make some assumptions that perhaps the famine had not completely lifted in the land of Moab, but Naomi hears that this God, this Yahweh, this El Shaddai, as she'll call him later, all these names that they had for this God that he had provided, that he had remembered his people back in the land that God had given to them. And so she decides that she's going to travel Back to her homeland, travel back to the land of Judah and see if there's provision there for her. But she instructs her daughters-in-law not to come with her. And this is a crucial moment in this first chapter. She says, each of you go back to your mother's home. Because her assumption is this. that If they were to travel back to the land of Judah with her, that they would be foreigners and they'd likely not be treated very well. This is her assumption she knows, remember, this is a woman who's spent now uh, 10 years of her life in a foreign place, who's likely fearful now without the protection of her husbands and sons of what it looks like to remain in this uh, foreign place where she's an outsider. And, and in love, she doesn't wish this on her daughters-in-law. Um, This isn't just selfishness or anger playing out or not wanting to be with them in any way, but graciously saying to them, I'm worried about you if you come back, that there's not going to be provision for you. And then she indicates them, and I'm not going to be able to provide for you a new husband to care for our family or for any of you. She says, I can't provide you what you need. So go back to your mother's home. And she does acknowledge God's control and say, hey, I hope that the Lord will act kindly to you in the same way that you've acted kindly to me. So she kissed them. And then this phrase for me just rings loudly. It says, and then they wept loudly. Um, I don't know like, if you have ever been around um, a situation of extreme loss. Uh, but this phrase, they wept loudly. We see it two times in this paragraph. And, and, and man, it's just each time I've stopped to dwell on it, it just kind of rocked me to my core. Um, yeah, I, consider it, I really do consider it one of the, the perks of pastoral ministry is that you get the privilege of often being around people when they are grieving. Because, um, man, it, it is a grace to get to be with someone in their vulnerability and get to just sit with them and love them. To, to, to hold their hand, to pray with them. But there is a distinct sound and feeling to extreme mourning that you have, if you've never experienced it, you, you just will not know the haunting of it. Of what it sounds like for someone who just feels Desperate and torn to just weep. And it's easy if we read these stories too quickly to miss these phrases and to instantly move on towards resolution and not stop and think about how desperate, vulnerable, and devastating this moment is. Scripture says they wept loudly. And the prospect of being apart, at the loss of a father, of two, presumably, of the infertility that no doubt had just left them filled with sadness and despair. They wept loudly. And so again, she pleads with the girl, she says, she says, leave. Go elsewhere. And she tries to make her point. She says, look, look, even if I could get married today, tonight, are you going to sit and wait for me to have a child and for that child to grow, and then you're going to marry that child so that someone will be able to provide for you, protect you, and and give you a place in this male-dominated patriarchal world? She says, no, go back to the home of your mother, which is to say go back to the place that you find comfort and safety and then hope that you find rest in the home of a new husband. Verse 12, she says, Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I'm too old to have another husband. 14 continues saying, Again, they wept loudly. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Now, don't villainize Orpah, and she does what most of us would do. She chooses to to go back to where she's found safely. She follows the instruction of her mother-in-law that cares for her. but, But she is placed here in opposition to Ruth who decides to stay. Ruth decides to say And so in this moment, we'll now read uh, the speech that Ruth makes here. And this is a famous speech uh, in in Scripture. And just watch as we read these words that Ruth will speak to Naomi, these promises that she makes, and see how how Scripture is providing these as a a comparison to what we've seen in the chapter thus far. Whereas in the chapter thus far we've seen uh, God's people choose to, to walk away from their family and their land, to disunify themselves from the people of God, to walk away from the place that God had promised provision. Look at how Ruth's words, even though she is this foreign woman who likely is looked down upon by the reader up until this point, look how this reflects loyalty, love, and worship of the one true God. Verse 16, but Ruth replied, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you go, you know, severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. Which that line always makes me laugh, right? <laughs> A little bit. She's like, Fine, go with me, but I'm not even gonna talk to you, right? Maybe you've never been treated that way. <laughs> to be clear, like my daughter <laughs> really does that to me, like fine, I am not want to talk to you. Made me mad. I'm sorry. So Ruth in this moment reflects loyalty and love. Ruth in this moment even aligns herself with this God and we're left to assume maybe maybe she's heard of this God. Maybe this family uh, did still worship their God in this household. But she says, I, I'm going to unite myself to you and the way that she unites herself to Naomi is unique in the strength in which she proclaims this unification. Um, uh, one of the commentators actually, Rob was the one who had given me this uh, statement so I don't know where it came from. You'll have to get the footnote from him later. But this commentator says that it goes beyond even the bonds of marriage. You know that we, we do marriage and we talk about till death do us part, but uh, Ruth says, hey, 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 nothing will separate you from me. Nothing but death will separate me from you. That she is uniting herself to her family beyond what her marriage required. That she is uniting herself to uh, Naomi's God in a way that is surprising, that is unique and provides contrast from what we've seen in this chapter overall. And so they travel down this road back to Judah and time elapses. And I, I wonder often like what, what that journey of the silent treatment was right like, right? Like it's not a super long journey, but man, these are these women are sad and torn and they're not speaking. And, and it's just left to make you feel all this tension over the moment when they're going to arrive back into the land. We pick it up in 19. So the two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem, right back to the house of bread. Right, when they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival, and the local women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Now, this is a really cool line there um, as I was uh, researching this week. Uh, the, the way that this phrase, it's like one of those onomatopoeia type words that it literally, like the whole town buzzed is the, the reflection of this word, Right? And I love that the town, these townswomen, they're excited to receive Naomi back into their people. They're excited to see uh, the, this friend, this like schoolmate, this, uh, this fellow uh, member of their community that has gone away. The whole town entered Bethlehem. The town was excited about their ri- arrival. And when they walk and they say, can this be Naomi? And she says, don't call me Naomi. You see, the word Naomi means lovely means lovely. So can this be Naomi And she says, don't call me lovely. And man that like that rocks me. That like her entire perspective on who she is has changed because of the suffering that she's encountered. Man, I said, hurting people. hurting people need time and patience. And that's hard. Like, because often, like, if you're trying to help somebody, you're going to find that, like, you're content to move on, but they're still hurting. That there's a part of you that's like, man, I need to be over this by now. But unique suffering and unique hardship has a way of challenging the way we see our very identity. And that's what Naomi's struggling with in this moment that she is not sure how God sees her. And so she says, don't call me lovely. Instead, call me Mara. Because I'm going to change my name from lovely to bitter. Because the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Why do you call me lovely? Since the Lord has opposed me. The Almighty has afflicted me. Those words. The Almighty has afflicted me. Now, if you'll notice, like as this chapter moves on, the author doesn't speak into it. The author doesn't answer her question. The narrator doesn't fill in any details on this. The townspeople don't speak into this either. But the narrator lifts up Naomi's statement, not necessarily as a statement of truth or fiction, but as a statement of absolute honesty. And he just lets it kind of hang there for you. It says, the Almighty has afflicted me. Naomi knew who her God was. And this word Almighty, it means El Shaddai. Almighty all-powerful, the one who can do all things. And so she has this connection in her mind between this God that she knows who can do all things and yet the present suffering and pain that she sees in front of her. She knew who her God was. She knew the faithfulness that he had promised. And so what Naomi's doing in this moment is she is crying out to God because she sees this apparent contradiction between God, who God has said that he is and how she in this moment is experiencing Thing and seeing him. Now, in the midst of your moments of greatest despair, take heart in what Naomi does here in the way that scripture doesn't condemn it. That Naomi, in this moment, has the freedom to say to her God, this God who has promised faithfulness to her, this God who has promised her that he is in control, this God who she believes orders the universe, that God has given her and given you permission to question the character of God when it doesn't seem to reflect what God has said about himself. That Naomi is able to bring honesty to God that she might receive a response from him. Now, this would be problematic if it lingered. This could be destructive if this feeling was the only way that she interacted with God for the rest of this book. But in this moment, it's just true and honest. And it's probably something because of the brokenness of this world that you will feel at some point. I've heard people say before, like, yeah, I, I wouldn't, I would never name my kid Mara, or even I would never name my kid Naomi. Like, I wouldn't want to re- reflect on that or reflect on bitterness before God. And yet, man, I think there's something beautiful and something unique and something that you probably struggle with just to be honest with God about the way that you feel. To say, I feel abandoned. To say, I, I don't understand how you can be in control and yet wildfires can rage and, and babies can, can pass on or be aborted or how I can experience the suffering that I'm in right now or I can be so sick or so unable to get past this thing in my life. Maybe you are. Because that statement, that statement is not one of blasphemy. That statement is not a statement of God, you are not God. That's a statement of God, I know who you are and I don't, I'm not experiencing it right now. And so what the author of this story does is he, he lets that hang with you for a moment. He lets you kind of sit in that, and he, he doesn't answer it. Instead, he steps out of telling this story and, and, and comments in, in this way in verse 22. So, so Naomi came back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law, Ruth the Moabitess. He gives just a summation. He gives just the simple statement of what happened. That Naomi, who had gone away, has now come home. That Naomi, who was in hunger and brokenness. Naomi, whose family had stepped outside of where God wanted them to be. Naomi, whose family was apart from God's people and experiencing the community and care that they had to offer, that Naomi, with all this circumstance in tow, came home. Came back from Moab, brought Ruth with her, and they arrived back in the house of bread. And then this last line, probably the most important line of the chapter. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. They arrived at Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Because here's the thing, the narrator doesn't intend for us to do what we're about to do, which is we're going to stop, right? We're going to stop, and we're going to come back to this next week. But So what he does is he's giving you just a taste of what's to come, that he's introducing this new time and this new space, and what he's doing to the reader is he's indicating for you that there is something beyond this short summation of the story. That the story of Naomi, whose husband has passed, whose two sons have gone, the story of hunger and death and fruitlessness, that this story is not the whole of the story, that they are back in the house of bread. They are back with the people of God. They are back where they belong, and that the barley harvest is about to begin. The setting in which God will provide redemption, where God will restore this family, where the hurts won't be gone, but where God will provide and show that he is that El Shaddai that she cried out to. The narrator answers Naomi's despair and anger with a reminder that it's not over. And so I want to do two things as we close this out. One, I just want to remind you of the gospel. That the gospel is your barley harvest. The gospel is the reminder for you of how God has already gone before you to end your story. That he has provided ultimately for the sin and the brokenness in this world to be resolved. That the death that uh, beseeched Naomi's family, that this hardship that had come upon them, that it had an end. And that its end was in the death And resurrection of Jesus who would destroy death, who would do away with sin, so that we would have something to look forward to in our moment of despair. And the second thing I want to do is is say, like if you're in a period of extreme hurt, if there's pain in your life that is still not resolved, that is okay. That it is okay to be sad. The gospel is going to play out and you're going to feel okay again someday. It is okay to be broken and to be not okay. It is okay to express that to God. It is good to express that to the fellow believers around you. There are seasons in our lives where we feel bitter and broken. Where we don't see how God is who he said he was going to be. And in those moments, it stops for us too because we don't have chapters three through four of our lives yet. We don't know how the faithfulness of God will play out, but we do know this, that God is faithful, that he has displayed his faithfulness to us in this book, providing story after story and then making those stories take on flesh in the person and work of Jesus that you would have a hope That it is not over. That it is just the beginning of what is to come. Let's pray. God, it's easy for us to not be able to even get a glimpse outside of the pain that we exist in. And, And so my prayer today, Lord, is that you would remind us of your faithfulness. So that God, those of us who right now feel pain or who are reminded of great pain that we have felt wouldn't expect a quick fix resolution, but would see a faithful God who has and will be faithful to us in the end. Whether that means restoration in this life, or the promise of all things new in your coming kingdom, Lord. God, help us to be able to lean on that and to trust in you in the weakest moments we have. We pray this in your name. Amen.